Hello and welcome to the Curious Body Podcast. I'm your hostess, Nyana B. Today we're on with Vince Cullen, who is a practitioner of the Dharma, first and foremost, but he's also an ex-alcoholic who found himself at a monastery in Thailand after taking his last drink of alcohol some 20 plus years ago. Now he's part of the Buddhist Recovery Network and he teaches all over the world to help people who are suffering from mental and physical addictions to substances. We touch on the fact that we are all affected and touched by some proportion of greed, hatred, and delusion, just as the Buddha pointed out 2,000 some years ago. So if you are suffering from any form of addiction to substance, know that there is a way out and a shift in perspective, and there are real ways to change your life for you, your family, and everybody who cares about you, which is the whole world because we're all connected in this entire wheel of being. So without further ado, I present Vince. Vince, can you tell us about your background and how you came to practice Buddhism? And can you please describe your primary practices in Buddhism also? Um, well, I'll, I'll try. Um, and for, you know, for convention sake, you know, I will say that I'm a Buddhist. I, I wouldn't particularly describe myself as a Buddhist, but it gives people a, a, a sort of a flavor of of how I try to live my life. I, I would rather describe myself as someone who tries to follow the Buddha's teachings, which isn't necessarily a Buddhist. Um, but that's, you know, that's a matter of conjecture. So I try to follow the, the Buddha's teachings, the, the Dharma, as it's, as it's called. Um, but my, um, my introduction to the Dharma uh, came through my addiction, my uh, alcoholism, uh, way back... Uh, uh, nearly 23 years ago, in October 1996, after 25 years of quite serious drinking, um, I found myself in my kitchen uh, uh, at my home in Newbury in Berkshire, and I poured out a glass of lager, and I made a promise to myself that that would be my last drink ever. I, I would drink that glass of lager and I would uh, not take any more alcohol and quite intentionally I, I would not swap intoxication to something else I, I, I wouldn't look uh, to start smoking dope or, or anything else uh, I was just going to to be sober and um, so I took that last drink um, and that was it. I never drank it. I haven't drank since, and I have no intention of drinking. I have no desire to drink. I have no desire to switch addictions or to switch intoxication to something else. Um, but it wasn't easy. After 25 years of, of, of serious, heavy drinking, um, it was a shock to the system. I sh it's something I shouldn't have done without medical supervision, for sure, but um, it's too late to tell me that now. Um, but psychologically and physically, it had a huge impact on me. And um, for the first maybe 18 months or so, I really thought I was losing my mind. I had no real support, 12-step um, fellowship. Um, I could see the potential and how it did help people, but it wasn't helping me. Um, there were certain factors that did click with me and many factors uh, of that path that didn't click with me. Um, so I struggled. I, uh, I was, was very uh, half-hearted in my recovery. I knew I had to keep sober uh, because my experience told me that not to do so would be um, very detrimental to everything, to myself and to everything in my life. Um, but it was it was a, a real struggle. I was I was abstaining. I was stopping myself doing something that I thought I wanted to do. So I was abstaining from intoxication. Um, 
But then somewhere along the line, um, my wife at that time um, uh, was training to become a counsellor. And part of her training was to um, offer service at a drop-in centre uh, for people uh, suffering from HIV. And, um, and many people suffering from HIV had contracted the disease um, through um, shared needles, through intravenous drug use. And one afternoon, someone walked into the office and said, Hi, my name's Mike. Uh, I run a charity in Reading in England, taking heroin addicts out to a monastery in Thailand. Um, I wonder if you'd be interested in being a trustee of my charity. Uh, and my wife said, oh, actually, you know, I've got two, two small children to raise, a, a home to run, um, I'm far too, and, uh, and I'm trained to be a counsellor, I'm far too busy, but perhaps I know someone who might be interested. And she, and she introduced me to Mike, and um, I went along to a trustee meeting of the charity East West Detox, and I walked out of that meeting as chairman of the, the charity, not quite knowing... Um, anything really about heroin addiction or anything about addictions of any sort, not even uh, my own addiction, and uh, not knowing anything about Thailand, not knowing anything about Buddhism or the different flavors of Buddhism. Um, so I decided that um, I, I better get a grip, better get a handle on, on what I'd let myself in for, and I, I paid for a trip um, to Thailand, my first trip to Thailand in, um, in late, very late, I think it was November, 1998 and I went to this wonderful monastery called Wat Tam Krabok which is near the town of Praputabat in Saraburi province in central Thailand uh, Thailand was a, a culture shock to me um, my first trip to Asia and visiting a Buddhist monastery was a further shock to, shock to me I was in awe of the the place itself and everyone there and I got to meet the first abbot of the monastery uh, a monk by the name of um, Lumpur Chamroon he described to me he showed us around and uh, he showed us the, the the vomiting process where the addicts are, are, uh, take a, a small dose of herbal medicine that's uh, it's an emetic medicine, and it makes you want to vomit. Um, although I, I would perhaps dispute that. It does taste awful. It makes you want to spit it out. And I think it's just what you're required to do is drink, you know, perhaps a half a bucket or a whole bucket of water. And it's the sheer volume of water that makes you want to vomit rather than the, the medicine. It's more so than the medicine itself. But I, I watched this process, and I and um, I went along to chanting in the evening. I I used the same um, herbal saunas that the the addicts did, and um, and I was very impressed by it. But then the the abbot said he dropped the bombshell. He said, "Well, this," he said, "is all very real. It's all very rapid. This detox, and for certainly for for heroin, very efficacious, very successful, as a very real, very rapid detox." He said, "But that's only five percent of what we're doing." He said, "The other ninety-five percent." is you can't take treatment here unless you take a vow. And this vow is called a satya, a truth. Uh, it's satya in Pali and in Thai, and it's satya in Sanskrit. So unless you take a truth, and addicts are asked to commit to, to not taking any narcotics for the rest of their lives. If they can't take that vow, then they're not admitted for treatment. And I couldn't help realizing that what I'd done at my kitchen table in Newbury two years earlier was exactly that. I'd taken a Satcha vow. I'd committed to not to take intoxicants for the rest of my life. I, so I couldn't help making that distinction. But what the abbot said was, in taking that vow, it's also a commitment to a new life, to a new way of being, to a new way of seeing the world. And that's when the penny dropped that for two years I had been abstinent. I'd been abstaining from doing something that I thought I wanted to do, a very half-hearted recovery. But when he made this distinction that the Satcha vow was about abandoning an old way of life, 
and creating a new way of life, that's when that, that penny dropped, the proverbial penny dropped. And, and I could see the difference between abstaining and abandoning. And abandoning was, was about leaving all that old life behind and starting something new. And, and that's when I would say that my recovery and my sort of first footsteps on the Buddhist path um, began this making that distinction between abstinence and abandonment. And indeed, in 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 many Buddhist um, talks, uh, the Buddha likens awakening to to uh, abandonment, to abandoning the past, abandoning how we were how we were. So that was my first sort of introduction to, to Buddhism. I, I took for the next couple of years. I went backwards and forwards. I, I took a couple of addicts from the UK to to monasteries for treatment. But even so, I held back. I didn't. I didn't really engage with the monks and nuns in terms of learning Buddhism, uh, learning anything more than what they're often the addicts, this taking a satcha, uh, taking the medicine, the herbal steam baths, herbal pills. Um, you know, my job was to get them to the monastery safely and to get them home safely. Um, and I didn't go too far beyond that. Um, but then in 2002, um, I left the charity and, uh, and I decided to um, deepen my own connection directly with the monastery. And in February, January, February um, 2003, I went to the monastery and ordained as a, a novice monk for a month for 30 days, or I think it's 29 days, um, with the intention to learn all about Buddhism and learn all about meditation and come away perhaps a more enlightened being. And um, all I learned during that time was uh, that meditation was extremely painful. And, um, and I learned virtually nothing about Buddhism. I learned the, some of the monasteries' um, doctrines uh, and approach uh, to Buddhism. Uh, but it's very unique, uh, even uh, in Thailand, the, the, the focus the quite narrow focus that what Tamprabok has on the Buddhist teachings around truth and truthfulness and around karma. Um, so in many senses, it wouldn't be recognized as, as Buddhist teachings outside of that monastery. Um, but I didn't, I didn't let that put me off. And um, the year later in 2004, I went to another monastery in southern Thailand for a 10-day silent retreat. Uh, the monastery's called Watsu and Mok, and they have a separate retreat centre, and they run 10-day silent retreats uh, every month in English. It's a very hardcore place. There are no Buddha images, there are no incense, no candles, um, just individual cells. Um, I call them cells because they have bars on the windows um, and, uh, and wooden beds, concrete pillows, uh, very just basic accommodation. Uh, two meals a day, a rice gruel in the morning for breakfast and a, a more substantial meal uh, before lunch. And, and that's it. And uh, the rest of the time, sitting and walking and, and Dharma talks, teaching. And I found it absolutely wonderful uh, to be introduced to these, these formal Buddhist teachings. Um, really resonated with me when someone said, uh, when one of the monks said that uh, you know a lot of our unhappiness, a lot of our discomfort, is driven by greed, driven by hatred, driven by delusion, I could see just how my life um, keeps going round, keeps keeps on. Everything I did had a proportion of craving, aversion, and confusion in there, or greed, hatred, and delusion in there. Uh, that's how I was living my life quite blindly, um, on autopilot just reacting uh, to my experience rather than responding to it. So you're asking what my practice is, and um, I suppose my foundational practice is this is, is satya, is this intentionality, this uh, to be a certain way in the world, um, a certain way that doesn't harm, my, harm myself and, and doesn't harm those around me. Um, and in order to achieve that, um, I, I use mindfulness. And um, 
in the Buddhist uh, mindfulness in a Buddhist context um, is to keep something in mind, to remember something you've heard or to keep something in mind, uh, to, to recollect what needs to be recollected. Um, and I find this a very, very powerful practice, whether that's sitting on a cushion and recollecting that I'm sitting on a cushion, I should be watching my breath and developing concentration, or whether it's the recollection of how I want to live my life harmlessly. And to, to, to be present in the moment, to be aware, to bring to mind you know, how my life is driven by this constant desire to, to move away from suffering, to move towards the end of suffering, and, and to do that out of compassion and not out of aversion itself to, to basic human suffering. And, and this goes beyond then into the what's termed the Brahma Viharas, the heart practices, the, the divine abodes, the, practicing these immeasurable qualities or trying to develop them trying to live them, these qualities of universal friendliness and compassion and joy and appreciation. And lastly, of equanimity, They're just seeing things as they really are, uh, um, a, uh, an equanimous perspective. Uh, one teacher calls um, this quality of equanimity um, a creative acceptance of how things really are. Um, so to live my life through through these lenses, through these qualities of, of friendliness or, or kindness, of compassion, of joy, for my own good fortune, for good fortune of us, and this equanimity of of seeing things as they really are. So that's where I am currently, and everything changes. One of these qualities of of the Buddhist part of Buddhist teachings is is that everything changes, nothing is stable, nothing is certain. Um, so that's where I am currently, where I'll be tomorrow, I don't know. That's amazing that your addiction actually brought you onto the Buddhist path and to show you a larger perspective in your life, the Dharma, which is probably one of the largest perspectives that we can have as human beings because we're striving for the the ultimate the ultimate human goal to see things as they are and get rid of like you said greed hatred and delusion i just want to ask you the dharma do you believe do you think that the dharma the dhamma applies to every human being or could apply to every human being, regardless of where they're located, who they are, and what they really think? Do you, do you find this to be the truth of human existence, the way that we should go or are going? Absolutely. <clears throat> um, the, the Dharma is universal the existence or the truth of impermanence can't be denied. We, we put on blinkers to it and we resist this idea. There's a cognitive dissonance around impermanence, but that's the truth, that nothing stays the same. Everything changes. And maybe for many, many people, many, many people, because of their circumstances, aren't really striving for enlightenment, aren't really striving for the end of suffering. They're simply surviving from day to day. They're, they're you know, looking for certainty, looking for safety, looking for security, looking for basic human needs. And they're so busy doing that that they can't go beyond. And I think, you know, that's uh, even I didn't, you know, for 25 years, I buried my head into in a, a glass of beer. Um, and that's what I was doing. I was craving for certainty, craving for security. Oh, and if I couldn't get it, then I wanted to bury my head. Um, so the, the you know this universal truth of impermanence applies to everyone. Everything changes. And the other universal truth that the Buddha put forward is is the noble truth of suffering. This 
everyone suffers. Suffering is part of being human. He described it as birth is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Old age is suffering. Death is suffering. Pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation and despair are all suffering. And they're universal. No one escapes them. Everyone is subject to them. And life is stressful. Life's uncomfortable. It's uncertain. It's insecure. It's disappointing. Life is painful. Our lives are complicated, boring, impersonal. They're difficult. They're distressing. They're challenging. They're unfair. Life is incapable of providing any lasting satisfaction. So life isn't just painful and stressful. In many ways, life is it's actually very traumatic. And we respond to that trauma in, in usually very unhealthy and un unhelpful ways. The Buddha talks about clinging. And the way I've realized clinging, at least in my life, and maybe you can relate and our listeners can relate, is that the past, we believe the past predicts the future, whether that it be for good or for bad. So if something negative happened in the past, we often cling to that for fear of something good happening in the future, which is kind of a catch-22. And on the other hand, if something good happened in the past, we cling to something good again happening in the future, which is not necessarily true. So if we're looking at clinging, it's almost like not taking the past and the future too seriously in terms of where we are going. And that's maybe why people search for security so much. I don't know. Hmm. It was I thought certainly, you know, safety, security, certainty. We like to know what's going to happen. We like to know where we're going to be tomorrow. We like to, you know, the safety and security of a roof over our head and, and the safety and security of our children, um, you know, having a, a future. Um, all basic human needs, but you know we go. We often don't see the bigger picture, and we go. We go about these things um, in unhelpful, unskillful, unwholesome ways. Um, one of the the set the second truth that the Buddha offers us is is a lot of our stress, a lot of our suffering uh, is born out of what he describes as craving. Uh, quite an acute craving in Pali it's, it's called tanha it's a very dark sticky type of craving or clinging or attachment as as you've alluded to and and sometimes this craving um, can simply just be not wanting things to be the way that they are or always wanting to be doing something else somewhere else um, just a craving not to be in the present moment uh, and he lists three particular types of craving the, you know the craving for sensual pleasure the craving for excitement the craving for stimulation and then he says we crave to be someone or something and how we we identify with a, a sense of self um, and then he says sometimes we actually crave not to exist and that can manifest itself in many negative ways, in in addictions and in eating disorders, and even in 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 the worst case, in 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 suicide. You know, not being able to cope with the way things are. So these two truths: this first truth of you know life is difficult, life is traumatic, and this second truth of craving um, that we want things to be different, we want things to be a certain way. You know, the two those two truths are really form a very negative feedback loop and they feed off of each other um, so it's not until you know we break the this this cycle until we can interrupt the, the craving for things to be any different from what they actually are that we that perhaps we can step out of this vicious cycle so life is difficult life is unfair you know the many un very unpleasant things have happened to me in, in the last couple of years. But I, I don't take them personally. They're just, you know, the results of causes and conditions. Um, and I have, so I base my response. 
based on that understanding rather than why me? Why is this happening to me? This is unfair. This shouldn't be happening. Well, why shouldn't it be happening? These are just the results of, of course, other people's actions uh, are causing conditions. So I can break that vicious cycle of, of wanting things to be different and accept, well, this is how they are today. How can I creatively respond to how things are? And that's where, where I come back to the and these Brahma-Vihara qualities, these qualities at the heart of, of um, friendliness and of compassion and of joy and of equanimity, of seeing things as they really are and responding appropriately. Yes. Um, so everyone is subject to birth, sickness, old age and death. Everyone is subject to impermanence. Um, everyone suffers um, from or is subject to you know, this, this clinging, this craving for things to be certain, a certain way. So if we're all subject to it, then we equally, we all have the opportunity to break those cycles and to change the way that we live. So I would say that, yes, you know, these teachings, the Dharma, is equally applicable to anyone who might call themselves a Buddhist and equally applicable to anyone who calls themselves anything else. As the, um, as the Dalai Lama so often says, he says, don't use Buddhism to make yourself a better Buddhist. Make Buddhism to make yourself a better whatever you already are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's nice. It's, it's very nice. And, you know, the, these teachings are universal you know the, the buddha offered a certain perspective on them but there are other individuals throughout history in uh, other times other places other cultures who came up with almost identical teachings almost identical points of view um you know let's take for example let, let me give you two quotes the first one is the things that you think about determine the quality of your mind your soul takes on the colour of your thoughts. Second quote. What the mind frequently thinks and ponders becomes the inclination of your heart. Now, two quotes that are almost identical. The first one is from Marcus Aurelius, a Roman emperor, Stoic, or a Roman emperor who practised Stoicism. Um, and the second one is from the Buddha. And so the quotes are probably 400 years apart, different places in the world but they virtually say the same thing. Uh, and there, there are many instances of, of many, many parallels to the teachings that the Buddha offered and, and psychological teachings offered elsewhere throughout history. Um, so I think the Dharma is universal and you don't have to be a Buddhist to practice Buddhism. It's often alluded to that the Buddha was one of the best philosophers and scientists and, you know, to find out the truth of Satitya Samupada and cause and effect and how the universe operates, it's actually nothing personal. So once we get into the Dharma, we don't have to cling to a self. Easier said than done. It's a long process, but it's uh, the universe is impersonal so perhaps we can take these things with a pinch of salt a little more lightly and yeah it's a recognition we can all have but my next question is about the bodhisattva vow so i know you've taken a satya but i'm wondering how you perceive taking your satya helps liberate all beings, which is the Bodhisattva vow, whether you have taken the Bodhisattva vow or not? I haven't explicitly taken um, uh, a Bodhisattva vow, particularly the, the vow, the, the formal vow, um, very much um, linked to, um, to Mahayana Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism uh, or, or even Zen Buddhism. Um, such a vow doesn't exist on my main path of practice, which is um, which is a, from the Theravada traditions. Um, but the vow, the Bodhisattva vow, is all about relieving suffering, ending suffering um, for, for ourselves and for other people. And that's such a vow that I took, uh, that commitment I made sitting at my kitchen table. Uh, 23 years ago um, 
simply to stop taking intoxicants had a huge impact both on my life, on the lives of my immediate family and friends, and on the lives of the people I work with, and has had a, a, an impact on everyone I've come into contact since. So, although not explicit within that vow, the, the vow to, to, to liberate all beings, it is implicit that by uh, my uh, commitment to harmlessness, not harming myself, not harming others, um, actually um, liberates or, or uh, has the potential to liberate other beings, even if just looking at me and, and, and following my example. Um, not, you know, not, set, not, not certainly not setting my up as uh, setting myself up as an example because I'm not Saint Vincent by a long shot. Um, but stopping taking intoxicants, uh, committing to not to take intoxicants for the rest of my life, it, I found out um, as, as my practice developed, it was just one suggestion that the Buddha gave to live your life harmoniously. Uh, one suggestion he, uh, one of these suggestions he, he gave um, to remove suffering from our lives and to remove suffering from the lives of those around us. And he called these five suggestions uh, precept, or the, he probably didn't call them precepts. They're, they're, they're just five suggestions, uh, or a recommended way of living our lives that um, that leads to harmlessness, uh, leads to harmony and um, and healthy communities. Uh, very simple five suggestions. He said, first of all, he said, no, don't go around killing anyone. It doesn't get you anywhere. And it just causes a lot of upset for everyone. So if you expand that suggestion to, you know, don't harm yourselves, don't harm anyone else physically. Um, you know that leads to to community uh, harmony in the community, and even it's a community right. You know everyone has the right for their physical being to be to be safe, to be respected. Um, a second suggestion he offered was, you know, don't go around taking anything that doesn't belong to you. Don't go around taking anything that's not been freely given to you. So this idea of respecting other people's property and being content with what we have um, again leads to you know. Um, uh, harmony within the community and then he said you know his third suggestion was you know to be sexually responsible to be respectful of, of our, our sexual relationships to be respectful of our sexuality not to cause any harm through our sexuality or through our sexual needs and again this is a you know a huge benefit for individuals and for, for communities his fourth suggestion was you know just be honest, tell the truth, and when we speak, speak kindly. He said, not a good idea to gossip, not a good idea to slander. And then his last suggestion uh, was simply, you know, don't take drugs or alcohol because um, it's pretty not a good idea. It doesn't, doesn't lead to, to harmony. It doesn't lead to, um, to, to keeping the other four suggestions. So these aren't rules, these aren't commandments. These are suggestions for how we might live our life harmlessly, and um, and I, you know, I saw almost immediately from just um, stopping uh, taking intoxicants, the the perhaps you know eighty percent of the suffering, excuse me, suffering in my life and the lives of those people around me, immediately around me, was ended instantly. So although I haven't explicitly taken a bodhisattva vow, I am committed through practicing these five suggestions, these five precepts, as they're known, I'm committed to harmlessness, to living harmlessly my life. I want to go a little bit deeper now and ask you, when I was listening to you just now, I was picturing... <laughs> if we're peaceful within ourselves and we are respectful of other beings, we retain our individuality, but we can still create a community with peaceful individuals. But do you see, especially in the Theravada tradition or through your meditation or what you practice, that the end goal is to dissolve all beings that have individuality into 
one egoless being, if you will. Even if we have communities or uh, groups of people, what would you say about that? I, I don't really know how to answer. Um, I th it's not about losing our personalities. It's not about losing our identities. Yes, you know, I don't have, you know, in, 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 in Buddhist terms, you know, the, the self doesn't exist. Um, that's, but that's not to say that I don't exist. Um, I, you know, I'm a firm believer that, 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 you know, there's nothing constant or fixed or unchanging about me. There's nothing about my life, about my makeup that I can control. So therefore, from a Buddhist perspective, you know, a, a self has to be persistent over time. It has to be under my control. Um, it has to be unchanging. There's nothing about me that meets those criteria. So, you know, he invites us to look at ourselves. Is there anything about me that is persistent over time, unchanging and under my control? And, and there's not. Um, you know, I'm in a constant state of flux, a constant state of being. And so from a Buddhist perspective, I do not have a fixed, unchanging self. And this is hugely liberating um, because I'm not a fixed self. So uh, I, I sometimes, I, not so much now, but I used to teach in prisons. Um, and this idea of a, an unfixed self is so liberating because, you know, what I did yesterday is what I did yesterday. It's not, you know, who I am today. It's not who I'm going to be tomorrow. So in terms of forgiveness practice or just looking at the past, you know, that's who I was then. It's not who I am now. It's not who I will be in tomorrow be tomorrow so not identifying with a fixed self gives us a huge potentiality for change to embrace impermanence because everything will change so i'm not stuck i'm not fixed and that's that huge potentiality for change is so liberating um but not, you know not having a fixed self doesn't mean that i don't have a personality that i don't have something pleasant to offer uh, you know to develop a sense of being or a being that that can smile, that can um, dance and sing and, um, you know, uh, offer uh, food to the hungry or whatever it is I might do. So I, I don't see, you know, a, 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 a blending of everyone turning out to, to be and look exactly the same. We're all individuals. We can embrace the teachings and still be individuals and still have a personality, um, still have our, our likes and our dislikes, but fully, you know, knowing, fully knowing that it's our likes and dislikes that can cause an enormous amount of suffering. Um, so um, there's, a, there's a lovely epic Chinese poem, and um, I can't, which I can't remember the name of now, but the opening lines go along the lines of uh, uh, the great way is not difficult for those without preferences. Hmm. Uh, but that really, you know, that's that's a long way down the path. And I actually quite like my preferences. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, but I'm fully aware that if I don't get what I want, then that's the opportunity for suffering. Um, so it's, it's just being um, at ease with the way things are. Yes. Even the Buddha uh, maintained his personality after he liberated himself. It's not like he disappeared. He was still working in the world. He was still teaching. He was meditating. He was doing everything human beings do. So, yeah, thanks for clearing that up. It, it's not something mystical or magical that we will just dissolve into nothing. Um, but we can create a more peaceful state if we realize like you said that things come and go they do change emotions come and go and we're not the same person we were today as we were yesterday and yeah we do have a huge amount of um potential in the moment every moment is a moment to do something different or new so it's it's very you know people say life is suffering from the Buddhist perspective, but life can be liberating as well. It's beautiful. <laughs> Very much so. So yeah, I mean that that sort of misquote, or uh, you know, that life is suffering. Um, 
it isn't doesn't quite you know paint the full picture but it was just saying that life is stressful life is difficult and that can't be denied so what's the wise response to life's difficulties life's stress um mm-hmm. you know what's what's the wise response to impermanence to 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 in the, the, this very short life that we lead um yeah so it, it gets us to look you know he invites us to look at ourselves and to look at the world differently and that's where the liberation lies that um, you know we we uh, lift the veil we uncover the truth um you know with our cognitive dissonance of, of you know wanting things to be the same um it gets uh, cleared up and we, we start to see things very differently and, and, and more clearly life is not um is not personal in a sense um one thing when i one of the things i did when i stopped drinking after about a year or so i got myself into therapy with a gestalt therapist and my main focus of that i think we were we worked together about 18 months and my my main focus of that was or the driving force that got me into therapy was i wanted someone or something to blame for my unhappiness i wanted someone or something to blame for my alcoholism and um and that's what a lot of the work over 18 months um, was about but now it's 23 years later and and having uh, investigated some of these suggestions that the buddha offers us what the dharma offers offers us an investigation to how things really are and also you know taking into account modern uh, science as well with evolutionary psychology um, and modern psychology um, you know i can see that um that there is no one to blame and nothing to blame you know i come from a long line of alcoholics on both sides of my families um so my parents suffered um, and their parents suffered and their parents suffered there is no one to blame it's not personal no one did this to me um it's just how I, this is just you know right here right now is the culmination of co- certain causes and conditions uh, and my liberation lies in how i respond to this moment that's awesome your peacefulness with your situation really shows through that it is nothing personal that you can get through addiction that you're not trapped by your causes and conditions because you can break that link in that chain and there's a way to do that it's very inspiring thank you you're welcome uh, it's a practice, Charla, and I've got a lot of practice still to do. <laughs> well, you've been you've been in the game way longer than I have, so I really I really respect what you're doing. It shows. I want to ask you one last question. I'm I'm a big question person. I like big pictures, <laughs> so it's another big question, but. If you could say something to people who are listening who might be struggling with physical or emotional or mental addiction or trauma and one good thing that they could do to take a step out of that and also imbibe their spiritual lives what what would you give to them as advice mm, oh that is a very very big question um, let me let, let me take a step back for a moment and um, okay so one of my favorite talks that the Buddha gave just a very short um, talk uh, he, he said uh, monks there are two types of sickness sickness of body and sickness of mind he said there are those beings uh, who can claim to be free of physical sickness for one year two years three years four years five years ten years twenty years thirty years forty years fifty years he said there are even beings who can claim to be free of physical sickness 
for a hundred years. He said that there are very few beings who can claim to be free of mental sickness, even for one moment. Except for those beings who have overcome the intoxicating inclinations. So he's basically saying that we all suffer from mental disease until we see things clearly. Um, yes, we can keep, we can have a fit body um, for well into, into our, our old age, but we all suffer from mental disease for most of our lives because we don't see things as they really are. Uh, and he gave many examples of, of a, he didn't explicitly call them intoxications or, or addictions, but he referred to people who were addicted to their body, addicted to food, addicted to sex, addicted to music, addicted to uh, alcohol and gambling, people who are addicted to their views, uh, people addicted to their sense of self. So, so these intoxicating inclinations, we're not going to get anywhere unless we change our perspective and see what true happiness is. So it's, it's that paradigm shift. We need, we need a, you know, a paradigm shift. So the, that short talk that the Buddha gave about, you know, there's sickness of body or sickness of mind. And in fact, you know, we're all sick. We're all mentally ill because we do not see what's real. Happiness does not lie uh, in money, in status, in excitement, in stimulation, in possessions. Happiness does not lie in relationships. Happiness lies in coming to terms with what is in a, in a healthy, um, creative way and res responding to our present moment experience wisely. Uh, and I always, I always used to think when I first started um, um, looking at these teachings that Buddhist wisdom was about developing some sort of super IQ or, or you know, um, clear vision to, to see everything. Uh, and now my understanding and my practice of Buddhist wisdom is to respond to the present moment experience from the heart. So every, each experience can be responded to with friendliness, with um, compassion, with joy, or with simply equanimity, with the balance, the balanced, um, unshakable uh, response. The, the advice I would give anyone is to is to see things differently, to see see reality. You know, be honest with what true happiness is what true contentment is and, and and to embrace uncertainty insecurity impermanence because that's what we have to make friends with our loneliness to to respond to life from the heart rather from from the mind um, there's a one of my favorite van morrison songs goes along the lines of um if my heart could do my thinking and my head begin to feel, I would look upon the world anew and know what's truly real. So to shift our way of being, a way of seeing things from, from the head to the heart, and whether that's through, um, you know, taking up a clinical mindfulness practice of you know, keeping something in mind, practicing the uh, mindfulness, secular mindfulness, whether that's joining a Buddhist group and um, developing a sitting practice and learning a bit about the Buddhist teachings, whether that's um, coming at, you know, at this from a Stoic point of view. The Stoics had a very um, helpful worldview, very similar to Buddhism, um, or whether we follow the Dalai Lama's advice and we use Buddhism to become a better whatever we already are, and we don't necessarily have to become Buddhists. Um, but whatever we do, you know, we can we can set our intention to move away from suffering and move towards the end of suffering, and make that movement out of compassion for being human, not out of an aversion to, to pain and trauma. So the movement out of compassion um, towards that 
perfect, unshakable liberation of the heart, a liberation from, from hatred, a liberation from greed, a liberation from ignorance, a uh, freedom from craving, freedom from aversion, a freedom from confusion. Yes, that's an excellent answer. And we're all human, so we're all going through very similar stuff. <laughs> nobody is different. Nobody is excluded. So we will all get there. So, well, John, you know, the, the penny's just dropped there. What, what The answer I should have given you to that last question. Ooh, it go is for one, it. Because it's, it's, it's something I say, you know, I teach one-day retreats, I teach five-day retreats, I teach, weekend, I teach weekend retreats. And, and what, at the start of all of those retreats, I say the same thing, that if there's one thing I want you to take away from this retreat, this workshop, is that what the mind frequently thinks and ponders becomes the inclination of the heart. So, if we frequently think and ponder ill will, hatred, confusion, then that's how we present ourselves to the world. And that's how the world presents itself to us. But if we if we frequently think and ponder kindness and compassion, um, non-cruelty, if we frequently think and ponder about letting things go, you know, not ha not grabbing the the, the, the um, stimulation, excitement, then that's how the world presents itself to us. We we, we live in a much happier world. So, um, one of my teachers, Christina Feldman, she rephrases uh, that line to what the mind frequently thinks and ponders shapes your mind and the shape of your mind shapes your world so very much with with our thoughts we create the world and do you want to create a happy world a contented world or do you want to create create a greedy uh, needy um, hateful world right on 